Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. What I would like to do tonight is do a little bit of a review of chapter 16 and then do some wrap-up. I'd like to then do a short introduction exercise for you to do for chapter 17. And if we have time, we will look at uh, a revelation characteristic that has to do with the interpretation of three verses that when we take them out of the context of Revelation, they lose just a little bit of their meaning. If we have time, we'll get to that. I will apologize in advance that I have a tickle in my throat. All these trees are blooming, then they died, and they bloomed again and died again and tore my allergies up, and it left me with a sore throat and sort of a tickle, and I've been coughing the last week. So I'm up here popping cough drops constantly. So I am sorry if I cough. I'll try to take this thing off and not cough into it. We'll see how that works out. Okay. You remember in chapter 16, we had the seven bowls of wrath from God. We had the noisome and grievous sores. And noisome, you remember what that word means? We don't ever use that word. Remember that word? It means to emit a foul odor or an offensive odor. The second bowl was seas turned to blood like dead men. The, uh, the third one was rivers, fountains become blood. Let me um, highlight that. This guy right here, remember him because we're going to refer back to him in just a moment. The fourth one, the fourth wrath, fourth bowl of wrath was scorching men with fire. The fifth was the beast kingdom being filled with darkness. The sixth was the Euphrates being dried up and kings of the east. And John Wright gave us an answer last week that I did not understand. And I didn't, yeah, he's back there hiding. I'm going to mention you again. I told Leah to tell you what I was going to talk about tonight. So I hope she, she didn't, oh man, okay, we'll get on to her for that. He gave an answer, and I did not realize that that answer was actually associated with Armageddon. So we're going to have to look at that for a second. You, the more you study Revelation, the more you learn. And that was something I knew nothing about, and now I do. So thank you, John, for that answer. We'll talk about that answer in just a moment. The seventh bow was great voice of temple saying, it is done. Verse 5 says, You are righteous, O Lord, because you have judged thus. Now the question is, you have judged thus. What have you judged? According to verse 6, you have judged those who have shed the blood of saints and of prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. Remember back, let me go backward. Rivers of fountains become blood. That's probably... What that verse is referring to is one of the bows of wrath. Now, was this literal plagues? Probably not. Um, We talked about this some in chapter 8, and especially chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 20, remember, I've mentioned this several times, so you've probably got it memorized. 
It said, and after these plagues, they still repented not. So somewhere in chapter 8 and 9, we have God doing something to the villain of the book of Revelation to try to bring about some sort of repentance. But if you look at those chapters, there's, there's really no way of telling exactly what God did. That's pretty much what 16 has given us too. We can't look at these bowls and say, oh yeah, he actually did that. They're, they're clearly representative of some type of punishment. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets. We saw in chapter thir- sorry, chapter 11, talked about the same thing. They killed the prophets. They killed the saints. Okay, chapter, in verse 12 it says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great rivers Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, and the way of the kings of the earth to make way for the kings of the earth might be prepared. We talked about what the kings of the earth was. Back in the days of, well, in the Old Testament times, the worst place that a visitor could come to Israel was the east. Because that's always where armies came to attack Israel and to defeat them. The Assyrians, the Babylonians... So kings of the east and sometimes the northeast is usually associated with punishment. It's usually associated with there's an army coming after us. It was God's way actually of punishing Israel when they turned from him. The kings of the earth, they're going forth to get the kings of the earth for that battle with God on that great day of God. Now, Premillennialists like to say that Armageddon is the end of the world. They like to say that these kings of the east are Russia, China, and they like to throw in um, India and Japan. I, I don't know why I can't remember India and Japan. But premillennialists like to throw all those four together and say those are the four kings of the east that are coming to attack Israel, and as soon as they attack them, that's going to bring forth, bring about Armageddon, which brings about the second coming, which brings about the, the thousand-year reign. But the question is, does, if God wants to defeat an army, does he really need to come down to earth, recruit a human army to fight evil for his final judgment? Is God going to use a human army to accomplish his final judgment of the earth? That doesn't even make sense. So, so premillennialists are claiming something that is totally nonsensical um, in saying Armageddon is, is the second coming, but yet God has to come down here and create a human army in order to, to fight this, this, these, these kings of the east that are coming. Now, let's see. Yeah, let's get to John's answer from last week. Okay, thank you, John, very much. He played stump the teacher and he succeeded because I knew nothing about what he said. Who are the kings of the East? And he said, could it be the United Nations? Now, it is true that Russia, I looked this up, Russia, China, India, and Japan are part of the United Nations. Now, is it the United Nations that are actually coming from the East to attack Israel? I won't say yes, but I won't say no. There's an interesting connection between the United Nations, according to premillennialists, 
between the United Nations and Armageddon. I did not know that. After I researched it, when I got home, that answer just kept sticking into my head, and I just had to, I had to get some relief, so I had to research it to find out if there was any, any association. Well, in 2003, and I assume this is still applicable, in 2003, a premillennialist at this website wrote an article called Roadmap to Armageddon. Now, what this, um, what this premillennialist said was that the United Nations <coughs> decisions and votes concerning Israel is actually speeding up our path to Armageddon. I'm talking a little bit too loud, so I'm going to, have to talk a little bit softer so I don't cough. Apparently, these votes against Israel are encouraging some United Nations members, or all of them, to further oppose Israel. And the article said there's basically basically three points, three reasons why. Number one, it's through biased voting against the nation of Israel. Number two, it's through forcing Israel to become a Palestinian state. And number three, it's through United States' weakness in supporting Israel. And according to premillennialists, the United Nations, they may not actually, well, they may or may not be the ones who are attacking Israel in their Armageddon scenario. But certainly they claim that the United Nations is actually helping speed up the fight which is Armageddon, which is the second coming according to them, and which brings about the thousand-year reign according to them. Thousand-year reign is the final goal. That's their goal. Their goal is actually not... It's not Armageddon, and it sort of is the second coming, but the thousand-year reign is what they are really after. They are really after Jesus coming to earth, creating and establishing a nation here on earth for a thousand years, and then everyone gets to go to heaven. Inside the article, there was this, there's this little snippet. It said, in pushing Israel along a roadmap toward a Palestinian state, the nations of the world defy God. The false peace that may soon be established is, in fact, a roadmap to Armageddon. That's what the premillennialist of the, of, the, of the article said. Any comments on that? Kind of interesting, huh? I did not realize, John, I'm sorry. I did not realize that, that uh, United Nations was actually a good answer. Strange, isn't it? Have y'all, I'd, never, I'd never heard that. Have y'all heard that before? I had never heard of that. That's brand new to me. There are, there's probably other articles out there as well connecting United Nations with Armageddon. This is just the one that popped out. Okay. And he gathered them together in the place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. We talked about how Armageddon, according to this verse... It's not a fight, it's not a battle, it's not a war, it is a place. And just like 666 is the number of a man, Armageddon is a place. No more, no less. In chapter 16, as well as chapter, chapters 8 and 9, the physical is used to explain the spiritual. It's used to represent the spiritual, to describe the spiritual, and to explain the spiritual. When we see John uh, having a vision into heaven, John talks about a sea of glass. I was talking to someone about that a while ago. 
a sea of glass. Is there really a sea of glass in heaven? I don't know. That sounds physical to me, and heaven is spiritual. Of course, we're not going to be able to understand heaven until we get there. This was just the best explanation that we can have at this time, because we are physical beings. We know the physical. We don't really understand the spiritual. We cannot see the spiritual. So throughout the book of Revelation, you're going to see the physical oftentimes representing something spiritual, something having to do with spiritual. I showed you a map of the uh, of Armageddon, the, the, the mountain of Megiddo. It is a plain, it is a valley that stretches from the Mediterranean Sea up in north central, actually it's the entire northern section of Israel. It stretches from the Mediterranean Sea, it goes sort of southeast, and then it takes a hard turn to the left and goes straight east all the way to the Jordan River. It's about 20 miles long, about five or six miles from north to south. This place is mentioned throughout the Old Testament. It's a very popular place, in fact. Kings of, of the Old Testament didn't want to go and attack someone's city because they wanted that city intact because if they won, then that city belonged to them and they don't want to spend their time and money trying to restore a city that they won that they ended up destroying in the process. So these kings would actually come up to this valley, Valley of Megiddo, Jezreel, um, to settle their differences. That's basically what it was. Here's the name of some of the the nations and the tribes who actually fought up there, history tells us, the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Amalekites, Philistines, Hasmoneans, Greeks, Romans, Muslims, Crusaders, Mamelukes. Mamelukes and Crusaders fought a lot. But that's some interesting history. If, you, if you're interested in battles, go look up those two names. The Mongols, the French, the Ottomans, British, Germans, Arabs, Israelis. We mentioned that in the story of David and Bathsheba, the scripture says that David should have been at war. There's a very good chance the Valley of Megiddo is where he was supposed to have been, possibly. That was a very common place for battles to take place. Okay. This is, this is newer material. We'll try to wrap up chapter 16 here. You remember this chart? I showed you this chart back probably lesson one, maybe lesson two, maybe lesson three. I've probably shown it to you several times. This is the order in which you, you have to translate or interpret Revelation. If you don't do it in this order, you're going to mess up immediately. You're going to first, when you have a verse, you're going to first have to be consistent with the surrounding verses. Then, once you get that, criteria met, you're going to have to have your interpretation be consistent with the entire chapter. The book of Revelation is, is broken down very logically uh, by topics, and whoever broke down the chapters did a very good job, probably one of the best jobs in the entire Bible as far as, as, far as chapter limits go, um, the chapter borders go. Once, you are, once your interpretation is consistent with that entire chapter, you now have to be consistent with all of, all of the book of Revelation. There's a little snag here, though. There's a little hidden tripwire. 
when you're consistent with all of Revelation, that means not just what you've read already, it also means the remaining chapters that you have not gotten to yet. And I'll show you how you solve that problem in just a moment. Fourth, once you're consistent with Revelation, you're going to have to be consistent with first century history. Now this history, number four, you may have to incorporate that in number one and number two and number three. You may have to mesh that in with all four, all five of these steps. And then last but not least, you've got to be consistent with the remainder of the Bible. The churches of Christ do a wonderful job. Every preacher I've ever heard, every Bible class teacher I've ever heard, has done a wonderful job, Matthew through Jude, as far as interpreting, being consistent, giving cross-references, saying, yeah, this is what this verse says as well. It backs up what's... They go to the original Greek, yeah, that's what the Greek said. Very good about that, but boy, when, boy, when it comes to Revelation, we just totally lose it, completely. We aren't consistent with any of these five items. I mentioned, um, I showed you an example, was it lesson number two? It was a lesson where we talked about the definition of tribulation. I think that was lesson number two or three. One of the others. Anyway, I showed you an example where you're consistent with first century history and you're consistent with the rest of the Bible, but you forget these top three. It was Revelation chapter 12, verse 14. Um... That verse has got to be consistent with the first four verses of that chapter, otherwise you've totally messed up. If you contradict that chapter, if you have a verse and you, you translate it, interpret it in such a way that you contradict the chapter, then it doesn't matter who else you're consistent with, you've got it wrong, within that chapter at least. So with that being said, let's talk about this business about being consistent with all of Revelation. How do I know that chapter 16 is not the second coming of Jesus? Premillennialists say Armageddon is the end of the world. Forget the fact that they contradict chapter 20 that says that the thousand year reign is going to occur on that same earth that was destroyed back in 16. Forget that because most of them don't even realize that. Some of them do. Some of the upper leadership has actually changed that definition twice now over the past 50 or 60 years trying to get it consistent. But they're still not doing a very good job at it. But how do I know? How do I know that chapter 16 is not the end of the world? Because look at chapters 14 and 15. Chapter 14 is the reaping of the harvest of the earth. You've got, you've got this, this large sickle that God has. He's reaching it out to the earth. He's, he's reaping the harvest of the grapes. And then he's reaping a second group of, of harvest that is the evil. The first ones are righteous. The second is evil. Chapter 15, well, the latter part of chapter 14 talks about the punishment that these evil people are going to get. Then chapter 15 talks about the rewards of the righteous. And then chapter 16, the seventh angel says, it is done. Sounds like the end of the world to me, does it to you? It sounds like the second coming of Jesus to me, does it to you? Sounds like the end of the world. Maybe the premillennialists are right, are they? Nope, they're not. How do I know that? Because the way you actually, if we had time, the the way you actually approach Revelation is you read it from front to end about 30 times until you can pretty much memorize and have a working knowledge 
of basically what's in each chapter. You don't have to have the chapters interpreted necessarily, but it helps to have a working knowledge of what's in each of these chapters so that I know if I say that the end of the world comes in chapter 16, well, I, I, now, I now know that there's something in 18 that that contradicts. That's not easy to do. It takes, it takes iteration after iteration after iteration, study after study after study, 4,000 hours of study. It, it takes a lot of studying to, to, to do that. But you've got to be consistent, not only with what you've already said and what the previous chapters are, you've got to be consistent all the way through at least chapter 21. 22 just deals basically with heaven, so you need to at least be consistent with, with through 21. Now, premillennialists, when premillennialists say that Armageddon is the end of the world in chapter 16, I've talked to premillennialists who did not realize Armageddon was in 16 and the thousand year reign was in chapter 20. And I believe I've mentioned this before that the powers that be who define premillennialism, the guys at the top, they have gone back, they went back several, several decades ago and redefined that part of the Armageddon is going to be, I mean, the thousand year reign is going to be on earth. What they say is a thousand year reign is going to be on the, in the new heaven and the new earth. And I wish I had my chart, my premillennialist chart. Let's see if I do. No, I don't. Okay. No, I don't. Okay. Um, what they decided to say was, no, it's not going to be on the earth because the earth was destroyed in chapter 16 with Armageddon. It's going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. Well... It took a while, but they finally realized that they're contradicting themselves there. Well, actually, they're talk, contradicting the book of Revelation there. In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it says nothing evil, nothing sinful is going to be in heaven, right? We, we've, heard, we've, seen, we've heard that all of our lives. Part of the thousand-year reign story that premillennialists tell us is that, well, if Jesus is going to have an earthly kingdom, and if we're going to reign with him, well, we've got to have somebody to reign over, right? So all these people who were not raptured, who did not go through the tribulation and get scrubbed by hand, by God, in person, the guys who got thrown into Hades, the really, really bad people, they're actually going to join the saints up in the thousand-year reign, so the saints will have someone to reign over. And some of the articles I've read said that that was sort that's sort of a get you back, get revenge against evil people for what the evil people did to saints back when the saints and the evil people were living together on earth. Well, you can't have that. Yes, sir. Yeah. It's just their interpretation of what they think. It's not even really what, what they think Revelation says. I don't know where they get what they say. Um, let's see, where was I? Where was I? Okay. Jesus is, oh, the guys who, the, 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 the evil people who did not make it to the, through, the, through the rapture, who did not make it through tribulation, who got kicked down to, to Hades, they are going to come up into the thousand-year reign in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, you can't have that with chapter 21 and 22 because it, it contradicts. According to chapter 21, the new heaven and the new earth 
allows nothing sinful in it. So therefore, these guys who were are going to be condemned to hell who are currently in torment, they can't come back. That's putting, that's putting evil back into the new heaven and the new earth. That contradicts Revelation. Yeah, so they came back as recent as, I don't know, five, six years ago. I just happened upon this information. They changed that story again. They say, well, now there's a, there's a, there's a new planet, supposedly, that NASA discovered that they think will, will handle life. It's 350 million light years away. I, I don't remember. I can't remember the name of it. But um, they say, oh, oh, that is where, that is where the, 20, the, two, the thousand year reign is going to occur. Because we, clearly we can't have it on earth because it's gone. Can't have it on the new heaven and new earth because nothing sinful is allowed in the new heaven and the new earth. So it's going to be it's going to be on that planet. That has a lot of problems too. One of the problems is, according to premillennialism, these people who are going into a thousand year reign are actually going to have their earthly bodies back somehow. I don't I don't know how that works. Not only that, but they have something called this, the restoration of years. For every year that you did not follow Jesus, you're going to give, God's going to give you, Jesus is going to give you that number of years to relive during the thousand year reign on earth, wherever that is. Now, we don't know if that means from the time you're a baby to the time you were baptized. So you're living your, 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 your babyhood and your childhood again, or if it's just going to give you, let you be an adult and you're going to live those years again. It's, it, it, it's, it's so illogical. It's even, it's difficult to talk logically about it. But anyway, you, 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 you catch my drift. You understand you've got to be consistent all the way through. You can't just pick this little bitty tiny window and say what you want to about it, and then pick this little tiny window and say what you want to say about it, and then pick... You can't do that. You've got to be consistent, even with the chapters that you have not gotten to yet. So how do I know that chapter 16 is not the end of the world? It's because in chapter 18, we get the villain's accomplices' reaction to that judgment. They're still on the earth. They are lamenting the fact that they're not going to have their power and their wealth anymore because the villain of the book of Revelation was providing all that to them and now they're not going to have it. If you are standing before God and you are evil and you know that torment is going to be your destination, the last thing on your mind is the 32 items that you were trading with the villain of the book of Revelation to get your wealth, right? I mean, if you're standing before God and you realize, boy, I messed up bad, the last thing you're going to think is, you know what, that last day I spent on earth, I should have worked some overtime to get that done. All you're going to be caring about is, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. That's not what these guys in chapter 18 were worried about. They were worried about what are they going to do now as far as wealth and power, because their wealth and power, the source of their wealth and power is now gone. How can you have people living on the earth worrying about that in chapter 18 if chapter 16 is the end of the world? You can't. 
What do premillennialists do with chapter 18? I do not know. I don't know. I have no idea. You've got to be consistent from, from beginning to end. Any questions about that? Any comments? I'm talking too much. I'm going to end up coughing here in a minute. Y'all, y'all talk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not even the angels in heaven know. But um, as I showed you in that equation the other night, at the end of chapter, what chapter was that? The furlongs? That's the equation that the premillennialists use to try to figure out when the end of the world's coming. They believe they know. And I think a survey, I've mentioned this too, a survey mentioned that up to a third, maybe more, of premillennialists believe that Armageddon will occur in their lifetime. Nobody knows. How do you know? And of course, every generation has their mark of the beast. Any other comments? Yep. Yeah, pre, uh, we talked about that a little bit. Baptist, a Baptist preacher who is the brother of a friend of mine, Tracy's, he claims that chapter 13, where it talks about buying and selling, supposedly that has to do with the United States going cashless. And by having a, a record, excuse me, a record of all our purchases, that's just the way the government tracking us. It, it gets silly. It gets crazy. Any other comments before we? Yes, sir. Let me let me get a microphone to you here. I personally believe that when people start talking about a thousand year reign, they're wanting to give people an opportunity to feel like they have a second chance. Well, yeah, it could be. In premillennialism, what I've talked about already, there's something already built in that gives gives people a second chance. Also, what part of premillennialism is that? I wish I had my chart. Say it, say it loud if you say it. There is a part of premillennialism on that chart. Remember, it goes up and then it goes over and then it goes down. There's a part of that chart that is a, actually is a second chance. It's the tribulation, remember? You can go into eternity with sin laid to your charge. Just as long as it's not too much sin, and just as long as you were sort of a good person, as long as you were a good enough person, God is going to meet you in tribulation, and He's going to scrub you clean and get you ready for the thousand-year reign. Yeah. Premillennialism does give you a second chance. That may be one of the reasons it's so popular. But of course, that, that begs the question, where, where does the blood of the Lamb come in? And we've, we've discussed that already. But yeah, premillennialism, a good description of it is you get a chance, second chance after death, just as long as you weren't a, what's that movie, a dirty, rotten scoundrel? As long as you weren't a really, really, really bad person, you got kicked down to Hades or torment, then you have a second, you have a chance. Okay, let's uh, let's get into chapter seventeen just ever so slightly. 
there's, there's some research I would like for you to do, and I'm going to show you how to do it. We're not going to cover this in class, so in order, if, if you don't remember how to do this, you'll have to download these slides. I'll make them, I'll make them available before the weekend. There are two words in chapter 17 that I would like for you to do a research on. I accidentally did a research on these verses, on these two words. I was trying to find a connection between one verse, one word, and and a similar word that's found in another part of the New Testament. What I found was something totally different. The best way to do this research, I've got it marked out here on the slides, Go to BibleHub.com. At the top of the page, type in Revelation chapter 17, verse 4. And then click the search, the little, the little, little, what do you call it, magnifying glass. When you do that, you're going to come to a page that looks like this. This is a parallel of of that verse among 30-something translations. Now, when you get to this page, go to the top of the page and click interlinear. When you click interlinear, you're going to go to a page that looks like this. Now, I showed you a blown-up version of, of what one of these boxes look like. In BibleHub.com, when you go to the Greek interlinear, every Greek word is in a, par- is in a column. Okay, There's five items in this column per individual Greek word. The very first row of that column is uh, the Strong's Concordance reference number. If you click on that, you'll see some Strong's Concordance information. The second word is the transliterated word, in the, the, Greeks trans, the Greek word transliterated into English. I'll get it right here in a minute. The Greek word translated into English, transliterated. The third row of this column is the Greek word itself. The fourth row of the column is this Greek word translated directly into English. And what's interesting is actually going to these pages and reading the English across because it it follows more or less the Greek grammar. So there is no English grammar following this page. It goes strictly by the Greek word. And of course, the, the last the last row of each column, the fifth row, that's the uh, the Greek parts of speech. Now, what I would like for you to do is to click on the tra- the transliterated English word. In this case, it's the the second row of that column. When you do that, when you click on that word, you're going to go to come to a page that looks like this. And this is where the fun begins. This is where you get to start using the search engine to start finding out what these words actually mean. Oh, not yet. One more time. Whoops. Let's go click summary. When you click summary, now, now we can start copy-pasting into the search engine. I'd like for you to copy-paste this English word that's transliterated from, well, it's actually the, the Greek letters in English. Copy-paste that word into your favorite search engine and see what links come up. Go to these links and start looking at the research on that word and what these websites are saying that this, Greek, that this word actually means. 
And as you, don't don't just go to one. Go to go to fifteen sites and go go to a bunch of them. I have I have a lot of good source. When you search on the search engine, one of the types of links that are going that's going to come up is synonyms, and that's where you can really get deep into these words. If you go to these websites that give you the synonyms of this Greek word. Now you're going to find out what this word really means. Go to those synonyms and do the same research on those synonyms. And then you're going to find the level that I'm wanting you to find. Okay? I'll make these, these slides available on, online in a, in a day or two so that you have a, so that you have a, a guide. And do that for both of these, do that for both of these Greek words. I was surprised what I found. What you're going to find, I'll let you find the definition of these two words. Uh, it's the word abomination and impurity. Uh, I think some translations say abomination and uncleanliness. Go look at what those words actually mean. That's, those, that's very euphemistic, what the translations are. Um, sometimes it actually helps to copy-paste the actual Greek word, too, into a search engine and start looking at what links come up for that particular Greek word as well. Go do that for both of those words, and you're going to find what God sees when he looks at a non-repentant sinner. You know, we, you go through the Bible and you wonder, well, what does God actually think about people who won't repent? Well, those two Greek words are going to tell you exactly what God sees when he looks at a, a, a sinner who will not repent. And I think you're going to be surprised what you find. I'll make these slides available in a couple of days. Um, six, chapter 16 may already be out there, but it does not contain this, these instructions. Any question on that? Does that make sense? It's just a matter of following some links down until you finally come to the right place. Yes? Yeah, but for the people who will not repent, what's, what does God see when he looks at them? This will tell you what he sees. And you're going to be surprised. Any more, any more questions on that? Any comments on that? Do we have time? Let's see if we have time to look at these. We can at least get one or two knocked out. I'm not going to say it's right or wrong to use these verses outside of the context of the book of Revelation, because outside, outside of the book of Revelation, two of these verses are actually consistent with the Bible. What I'm saying is, when you do not use these verses in conjunction with what Revelation is saying, you're losing just a little bit of the meaning of it. So let's take a look at one and show you what I mean. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, for none of those things which you... 
Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. That word unto, ooh, that word unto, I've heard translated most of my life, meaning be faithful till the day you die and you're okay. Be faithful and until the day you die, and you're going to get a crown of life in heaven. That's not exactly, in the context of Revelation, what that verse is saying. If you go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it actually tells you what that means. It's the same Greek word, unto. It says, and they overcame him, meaning Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. It doesn't mean, oh, just be, be, be faithful until the day you die and you'll have heaven. Now, that is true. That's consistent with the rest of the Bible. But that's not the intent of this verse when you come to the book of Revelation. These Christians are trying to keep body and spirit intact. They're trying to keep their families together. They're trying to stay alive. They're being starved to death by proxy or directly. They're being put, based upon what historian you read, they're being put in the Colosseums to fight these animals for entertainment. They're being murdered, they're being killed, they're being thrown into prison, they're being beheaded. Just before this verse, in chapter 12, it's saying, this is the punishment of the people who are going to be... No, no, that's, that's the next verse. One of the verses say, it says, this is the punishment of the people who bow the knee to the beast. But you, if you want heaven, you be faithful even if it costs you your life. Now, be faithful until the day you die. Yeah, that's true, that's true, but that's not exactly what this verse is is trying to convey in the book of Revelation. It's saying, you be faithful even if it costs you death. Little bit different there. Is it wrong to take this verse and just use it standalone? I'll let you decide that. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. It's still consistent with the Bible, but that's not exactly what the intent of this verse actually is in the book of Revelation within the context of the first century Christians and, the, and part of the second century Christians and within the context of, of what's happening in Revelation based upon chapters oh, 1, 6, 7, 19, 20, which define actually what the tribulation is. That is the beheading and the murdering of the Christians in the first century. Does that make sense? Is it wrong to take it out of... I don't know. I'll, 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 I'll let the preachers and the other teachers worry about that. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not, I'm not even going to think about answering it. That's up to you. But when you take it out of Revelation, it changes its meaning just a little bit. You don't have the full impact of the intent of that verse. Okay? Something tells me I'm going to get another bell here in about a second. Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. Now this is interesting. This is another verse. You'll hear this at funerals a lot. My dad owned a funeral home from the time I was, or worked in a funeral home by the time I, from the time I was like four years old until I was a junior in college. And I'm telling you, this is a very popular, this is a very popular verse at funerals. Very And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. This is similar to chapter 2, verse 10, isn't it? 
Be faithful until the day you die, and heaven will be yours. Well, blessed are you if you die in the Lord from henceforth, uh, because you're going to rest from your labors. That's not exactly the full impact of this verse of this verse within the context of Revelation. Um, what is actually happening in Revelation? You'll see that the Christians are saying, how long before you avenge our blood? And it says, in the end of verse 11, it says, rest a little while until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were is complete. So, what does that mean for that verse? Uh, verse chapter 20, verse 4, those were beheaded, they were, they were being murdered. So we go back, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. This is a verse where before it, it gives you what the punishment is for the people who bow the knee to, to the beast. And it's saying, don't do it because you're going to be blessed if you die in the Lord. You're not going to be blessed if you die after having bowed the knee to an idol, bowing the knee to the beast, bowing the knee to anyone but God. The meaning changes just a little bit when you take it out of the context of, of Revelation. We'll, we'll cover that verse again and then the third one at a later date. Okay, thank you for your attention. That is all. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.